Welcome to Bladder and Renal Cell Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Robert Mozer from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and to begin, I asked him to comment on recent clinical trial data evaluating the use of adjuvant therapy in patients with renal cell cancer. There has been a number of different trials of cytokine therapy, interferon, high-dose interleukin-2, over the years that showed no delay in relapse of disease-free survival. And when the VEGF-targeted therapy became available, there was a lot of interest in adjuvant trials because of the robust activity that was seen with those drugs. So there's now been about five or six of these large adjuvant trials that have been set up virtually with all the targeted drugs. And, you know, really the first one was the ASSURE trial, which was the cooperative group study in the United States comparing sinitinib, serafinib, and placebo. And that was a 1,800-plus patient trial, and it was kind of the grandfather of all these. And at the end of the day, there was absolutely no benefit in relapse-free survival with serafinib or sinitinib. So more recently, the S-TRAC trial was reported, and that was an industry-sponsored study that compared sinitinib to placebo. And that trial did meet its primary endpoint, showing a longer disease-free survival or relapse-free survival compared to placebo. So now we have these two large trials showing different results, one showing a benefit for sinitinib and the other showing no benefit. And I see that the hazard rate in the positive trial for sinitinib was 0.76, so not you know overwhelming, but still, as you say, statistically significant. What were some of the explanations that have been postulated for the differences? And is this enough for you to consider or bring up the issue of actually treating people outside a trial setting with a TKI or sinitinib? Yeah, there were differences in trial conduct and design. So, for example, in the ASSURE trial, patients with even stage T1 lesions were included. T1B lesions were included in the ASSURE trial and T2 lesions as well. The S-TRAC was strictly T3 or higher. The ASSURE trial included patients with non-clear cell histologies, and the S-TRAC was only clear cell. So I think that would make a difference because we wouldn't really expect these drugs to benefit so much patients in the non-clear cell histology. It kind of biases the ASSURE trial against being negative. There were other differences as well. In the S-TRAC trial, there was a review by an independent radiologist for eligibility to screen patients for metastasis. And for the ASSURE trial, it was much less screening. I believe that even a chest X-ray could be used to rule out lung metastasis. The S-TRAC trial, the primary endpoint was made by a blinded central review committee independent. And in the ASSURE trial, it was the investigator. And there were also differences in dose as well. The ASSURE trial for About halfway into the trial, the doses were reduced of all the drugs. For sinitinib, the full dose is 50 milligrams, four weeks on, two weeks off. And it was reduced down to 37.5 and to 25 as well for dose reduction. The S-TRAC, there was an emphasis on that high dose. So all patients were treated with the 50 milligrams. And dose reduction to 25 milligrams was not allowed, just the 50 and the 37.5. So 
There were differences between the study and the primary endpoint for S-TRAC was independent review. It didn't meet statistical significance for investigator review. The Assure trial was just all investigator review. So there were differences between the two studies regarding the patient population, how it was conducted. So the Assure trial was done through our U.S. cooperative group mechanism, which is a lot of community physicians can be involved. The S-TRAC was a global trial that focused on centers of excellence worldwide. So I think, you know, that could be another factor in terms of explaining a difference. You know, a couple of things you mentioned were kind of interesting. One, the issue of the eligibility and, you know, sort of the lower risk in the Assure trial. When you look at the actual event number, was it powered adequately, the Assure trial? I think it was powered adequately. It was a big study, 1,800 patients. I don't think I can criticize the statistical design. The statistics were put together by a very well-renowned statistician as part of the cooperative group. But I think it was just, you know, a different population. You also mentioned that the S-TRAC trial, the investigator review was not positive. Why do you think that was? You know, it's difficult to say. It was a secondary endpoint It didn't reach statistical significance, but it was very, very close to the investigator review. So it was trending in that direction, but it didn't quite reach statistical significance. For the Assure trial, there was, you know, absolutely no benefit. It was a hazard ratio of like one, so that there was absolutely not even a trend in favoring one of these drugs over placebo. Now, you actually put patients on the S-TRAC trial. What was it like getting people through a year of adjuvant sunitinib? Yeah, I was the highest enroller worldwide on that trial. I think I accrued 25 patients. So I didn't find it so difficult. I participated in that trial as well as the PROTECT trial. But, you know, patients coming to my center tend to be very motivated to come to Memorial Sloan Kettering. They tend to come from distances, focused on clinical trials. And so also, Neil, you know, I have had a lot of experience with sunitinib and managing toxicity. So I think that that experience as well probably can be a factor. Any pearls of wisdom in terms of getting people through sunitinib in the more typically in the metastatic, but even in the, the adjuvant situation? Anything that you think you've learned that you'd like to share? For me, probably the most problematic adverse event or side effect from sunitinib is the hand-foot-skin reaction. When I see that, that really interferes with people's activities of daily living. And so I know there are other side effects that are more common, like fatigue and diarrhea and so forth, but it's really that hand-foot syndrome that interferes with the patient's daily routine. So, you know, we are very proactive with having the patient see a dermatologist who's well-versed with the management of that and we maximize topical ointments for that. We encourage the use of soft-soled shoes. But if it just continues as problematic, I mean, then we dose reduce because patients need to be active and have good quality of life. That's part of the purpose of these outpatient long-term regimens. I know that Mario LaCouture, the dermatologic oncologist, is at Memorial. And has he been involved with these patients? Any special pearls from him? Yes. So Mario is my key person with regard to management of dermatologic issues with sunitinib and all of these targeted drugs. And so I think that he's very effective with that. And I know he has educational activities that he does with regard to that. And I think those are very important. So getting back to the basic question here, as a result of the S-TRAC data, 
Are you now bringing up the issue of off-protocol adjuvant therapy, and are you actually treating patients? Well, I have been holding off on that because at this point, adjuvant sinitinib is not included in the NCCN guidelines. It also has not received regulatory approval for that purpose. So with the release of the sinitinib phase three trial in October, I mean, I've been mentioning it to patients and discussing it with them, but I haven't actually utilized sinitinib in the adjuvant setting. I'm waiting for review by the NCCN and also, you know, very uh, important, the regulatory decision on whether it should be given as part of standard of care. I can't remember where I've heard this, but the concept that anti-VEGF therapy, I think I've heard it with Bev, but maybe it applies to TKIs, theoretically maybe would be synergistic with checkpoint inhibitors? Yeah, that's right, Neil. There is preclinical data that show that there's synergism with VEGF-targeted therapies in immuno. There has been some early data that's been released at ESMO. There was an abstract of over 50 patients treated with Pembro plus Exitinib, showing a 70% response rate. I've been participating in clinical trials with these combinations, and I've been very encouraged by the high level of activity that we see with those particular combinations. Any particularly tolerability concerns? Well, early on, you know, with regard to reported data, the very first combinations that were studied were sinitinib and nevo and pazopidib and nevo. And looking back on that phase 1b trial, I think that the toxicity with sinitinib plus nevo was not prohibitive. I think that that could have been moved forward in a combination. Instead, exitinib was chosen, which is fine, and bevazivimab, of course, combines well with everything. I don't think pazopinib will move forward in combination. Based on that study and another phase one study presented at ESMO by David McDermott, there's a high level of hepatic toxicity by combining pazopinib and checkpoint inhibitors. So I don't think that that combination will move forward, but certainly limvatinib plus pembro is being studied in a big phase three trial, exitinib, pembro, exitinib, avalumab, bev, Atezolizumab, those are all, in my opinion, real promising combinations that I think will change our first-line management in the next couple of years. So I want to talk a little bit about checkpoint inhibitors in a second, but just to continue on in terms of TKIs, maybe you can provide a little bit of an update of data sets that have come out in the last year that you think are important for oncologists in practice to know about. And I want to start out with the big meteor study that you were involved with looking at cabozantinib. Can you talk about that study and about also the Cabazin study, an alliance trial that was presented at ESMO looking at initial therapy? Yeah, so cabozantinib is a VEGF TKI that also inhibits some other kinases that are felt to be important for resistance, and they are Axel and MET. And there was a very small multicenter experience that suggested cabozantinib was very effective in patients who had progressed on sinitinib and pazopinib. And so the Meteor trial was a large randomized phase three trial that compared cabozantinib to everolimus in patients who had had one or more prior VEGF-targeted therapies. And the primary endpoint was progression-free survival, which it met. And more recently, it met one of the other key secondary endpoints, which was overall survival. And so it's a very effective drug, in my opinion. It resulted in a good response rate, prolongation, progression-free survival, and 
most notably improvement in overall survival, which has been very elusive for us to demonstrate in our studies in kidney cancer. So I think it's a real solid contender now in second or third line therapy. The CABOSUN trial was a randomized phase two study that compared cabozantinib to sinitinib in patients with intermediate or poor risk features in the first line therapy. And it enrolled about 140, 150 patients, and it showed improvement in progression-free survival and response for cabozantinib compared to sunitinib. So I think that cabozantinib has potential to be an option in first line therapy for intermediate and poor risk patients. In this study, it looked particularly effective compared to sunitinib for patients with bone metastasis, And I think that there are some aspects of the trial that have been pointed out as kind of considerations or issues that need to be clarified. And the two main ones are that in the study, the sunitinib seemed to underperform what we would expect. In that study, about 80% of patients were intermediate risk and 20% were poor risk, but the response rate with sunitinib by investigator review was only about 19%. And so in the other studies, it's been 30, 40% in some of the trials. And also the median number of cycles of therapy was less than what we'd expect. It was only two for sunitinib, and it's been longer in the other trials. So we're trying to you know, ask ourselves why the treatment was kind of so short in that population and why was the response rate so low, uh, 19% compared to 40-something percent with Cabozantinib. So what I would love to see is review of the responses by a, you know, independent review committee to kind of confirm the activity from that phase two trial. You know, we were talking about the fact that people at centers like you see a lot of patients. I mean, you have, you know, great support. And we were talking about Dr. LeCouture. And I kind of wondered over the years whether maybe people who are more experienced at preventing and managing toxicity might end up actually getting more benefit out of these drugs. Any thoughts about that? Yes, I believe that's true. I think that just like anything, the more experience you get with a tool, the better you are at using it. And so I think the tool here are these vegf targeted drugs. And with experience, you get a good sense in terms of how to manage the toxicity, when to dose reduce, when to give patients a holiday in terms of stopping treatment for a bit. Also, when to pull the trigger and start the treatments. Not all patients need treatments immediately. Sometimes we use surveillance as well as, you know, when is the patient not receiving clinical benefit and having an experience with a lot of the second, third line drugs, you know, kind of what's the best one for the patient based on how he's doing with the first one. So I think that experience is really important. Getting back to cabozantinib, what's your experience and what's the data show in terms of the tolerability, for example, compared to zinitinib? So I've probably treated 20, 25 patients with cabozantinib. I don't have an enormous experience. You know, it's new, and I participated in the phase three trial, but we accrued about 12 patients on that trial, and about five had had cabozantinib. So I don't have an enormous experience. I am getting more and more experience now that it's approved, and I'm using it more and more in patients. And I have not had difficulties with using cabozantinib in my patients, and I haven't really been so impressed by toxicity that was mentioned by others. In my hands, it's a pretty well-tolerated drug. I mean, I think that some of the side effects seem similar to me to sunitinib. There's sunitinib-type side effects where there's some fatigue, maybe some diarrhea, some hand-foot syndrome, 
But I think that more has been made out of the toxicity with Cabo than certainly what I've been seeing. And I think part of that may have been among the GU oncologists, the initial experience was in prostate cancer with much, much higher doses. So I think it had that kind of a framework going into the trial. But I found it to be a pretty easy drug to use. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember hearing about it in prostate cancer and people saying negative things. I didn't realize the dose was higher, though. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So globally right now, how do you sort of decide which TKI to start with? And if you're going to use a second or third or fourth line TKI, kind of how you're going to sequence them? In the first line, I think the two major contenders for treatment are Pazopin and Bincinitinib. And there are advocates for each. Based on the COMPARS trial, which was a comparison of sinitinib to pizopinib, a non-inferiority trial, I generally use pizopinib in patients who are not on a clinical trial. And so that's been my first-line choice. What I've found is that the major side effect or issue or problem with pizopinib is the hepatic toxicity, the elevation of liver function tests, which occur usually by 8 to 12 weeks. And so when patients develop the liver function test abnormality, it is problematic. It's disappointing to the patient. And normally I stop pizopinib and switch to exitinib. But what I found is for the other remaining patients, probably the 80% of patients who don't have any sort of liver problem, then over time I think they do feel better than if they're on sinitinib. And I think reasons for that are the lack of blood count suppression, less fatigue, and less incidence of hand-foot syndrome. But there is a certain confidence that many feel with regard to efficacy from sinitinib. It's been well entrenched. It's been here for 10 years. People have a lot of experience with it. They're more used to using it and modifying toxicity. And also, many claim that the two-week-on, one-week-off schedule is a better, more tolerated schedule. So I You know, I really think that either one of those are very good choices in first-line therapy, and it's really the doctor and the patient's choice. Is there any reason to believe that it is more effective than pizopinib, or is it generally accepted to be equal, just a question of toxicity? There has been this view voiced by some that it's more effective, that we see more responses and so forth. But I mean, that large trial, the COMPARS trial, it didn't show any difference in response rate, didn't show difference, meaningful difference, progression-free survival. And probably most meaningful, the, you know, the overall survival was exactly the same between the two drugs. Another agent that's come on has been lenvatinib and lenvatinib everlimus. What do we know about that, and how do you incorporate it into your practice? So lenvatinib is a VEGF-targeted therapy that also targets FGF, which is felt to be in a pathway, fibroblast growth factor receptor, which is felt to be an important pathway for resistance as well. And for that drug, there was preclinical evidence that it worked very closely, very well with everolimus in the preclinical model. So in that trial, we initially did a study, which was a lead-in of the combination, and found a dose that seemed to be well-tolerated for patients with a lower dose of lenvatinib and a lower dose of everolimus. And then we moved into a randomized phase two trial, comparing lenvatinib everolimus versus lenvatinib versus everolimus alone. It wasn't originally designed to be a registration trial, But it was a well-conducted study. There were scans that were collected after the study was over and reviewed by an independent response committee, and it showed a 
a very powerful effect for the combination with the median progression-free survival of over 14 months, which is the longest that we've seen in this sort of setting. So it was approved based on a phase two trial with that long PFS confirmed by independent review and also a strong trend in overall survival at the initial assessment, which became statistically significant over time. So what about in your own practice outside a trial setting? Are you using this combination? Yes, I am. For patients who progress on checkpoint inhibitors, I'm offering either cabozantinib or levatinib everolimus. And I'm doing that because of this new data with the survival benefit and also to gain more experience, personal experience with those compounds. And I'm finding them in my own hands to be relatively well tolerated, including the levatinib everolimus and particularly effective. So I think that they are good medications for our patients. Right now in your practice, are you utilizing everolimus monotherapy in any situations? You know, I think that everolimus monotherapy is bumped back. I think it may still have a role in refractory patients. Patients have been through a number of the VEGF targeted therapies. So I think that we still use it, but it's, you know, bumped back in the line, similar to what happened with serafinib. We still use serafinib as well, but, you know, it's more in the refractory patient. How do you answer a general oncologist in practice who says, what about patients who've got beyond TKIs, they've got beyond everolimus, they've got beyond checkpoint inhibitors, it's still in good condition, no trial available, is there a role for multiplex testing of the tumor, such as next-generation sequencing? For practical purposes, is that a reasonable consideration? Well, I support that completely, but it hasn't been shown to impact on standard management in kidney cancer. So, for example, at our center, what I'm doing is I'm funding our own impact testing for patients, all our kidney cancer patients who are on trials. And then we look at their mutation profile and it becomes part of their medical record. And so now we've established data set for hundreds of patients, and we've kind of looked at what the different mutations are in kidney cancer, and we're beginning to publish that results. And, you know, there was one report suggesting that mutations down the mTOR pathway may predict a better response to everolimus. But other than that, it's not yet part of standard practice. We haven't been able to affect a standard management with that. At our center, Sometimes there's a mutation which we have a new drug for in a clinical trial, like an anti-FGF drug. And so we've referred those patients to the phase one group for targeted therapy for their mutation. But again, it hasn't affected standard of care treatment. Any promising targets or targeted agents? Well, my focus really and my enthusiasm really is on these immuno combinations. I think that the epilubabob, nivolubab combination, the VEGF immuno combinations, I mean, that really is what I see as potentially making a big step in terms of extending survival and remissions and so forth. Regarding other targets, I mean, there's some studies being done out there with some novel compounds. There's a trial that's being done with a drug called Delantercept. It's an anti-angiogenic drug, but it hits a different target. But aside from that, we really haven't been able to identify other targets for this disease. I mean, I think that's a high unmet need. For the most part, all the drugs we use are either PD-1, mTOR or VEGF. I mean, we have many drugs now, but there's only three basic mechanisms. And so 
finding new targets is a high unmet need in this disease if we're going to make significant progress. So in terms of checkpoint inhibitors, I want to begin by asking you about sort of the biology of renal cell cancer as it applies to checkpoint inhibitors. There's always been this, I don't know, thought that it is an immunogenic tumor. You know, people have stories about having primaries taken out and METs going away, et cetera, et cetera. But is there anything specifically known in terms of the biology, PD-1 levels? You know, there really has not been, Neil. I mean, kidney cancer, as you mentioned, has always been historically considered to be immune responsive tumor. And, you know, when I joined faculty at Memorial back in the 1980s, the two malignancies that were thought to be the best targets for immune therapy were melanoma and renal cell carcinoma. And that was largely due to a phenomena of spontaneous regression that was seen with both tumors and also the activity that had been reported with interferon, which, you know, an immune modulator, and then subsequently with interleukin-2. So it's more been on clinical evidence and historical evidence. With regard to the, you know, more recent biology, renal cell cancer does express pdl one Originally, when pdl one was looked at as a prognostic marker across tumor types by the group at Mayo Clinic, you know, one of the tumors they looked at initially was kidney cancer. And so kidney cancer, pdl one was a prognostic marker of a bad outcome. But other than that, we need more information regarding the underlying biology. People these days are looking at mutation load now as a predictor for better outcome to checkpoint inhibitors. In melanoma and in lung cancer, there's been some suggestion that if the tumors have a higher mutational load or a higher load of these neoantigens, then they are better targets for immunotherapy. In kidney cancer, we and other people are looking at that, but we don't have the information yet in this disease. What's the current thinking in terms of smoking and renal cell cancer? And is there a correlation, for example, in lung cancer, you see more responses in smokers. Has that been looked at with renal cell? So in terms of risk factors for kidney cancer, the one that's been the most well-established is tobacco use. There were estimates that probably about 30% of the cases diagnosed in the United States were associated with tobacco use. In the studies with the checkpoint inhibitors, though, to the best of my knowledge, we haven't been able to show a difference in outcome as to whether the patient's a smoker or not. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the clinical research evidence that's available right now, both with single-agent checkpoint inhibitors and, as you were saying, some of the combinations I was just flashing, I think it was Chuck Drake from Hopkins who presented a case at one of our conferences of, I think it was the first patient who got nivolumab eight years ago who's still in remission. So I don't know sort of when the research started, but what do we know at this point? Well, the first study was that phase one study that Chuck Drake participated in. That was a phase one trial and then expanded into different cohorts and kidney cancer Lung cancer, melanoma were the three main targets. And so in that particular series, just at last year's ASCO, David McDermott did report on a long-term follow-up. And there are a few patients on that that are still in remission on checkpoint inhibitors, but it's not a high number. We did do a large randomized phase two trial of nivolumab, and then more recently the phase three trial comparing it to everolimus. So, I mean, we're looking for the tail on the curve to that and what the tail of the curve is. And I think probably the best indication will be with longer follow-up from the pivotal trial compared to Everolimus to see if there is actually patients being cured. 
I don't think we know that right now other than seeing anecdotal cases that are doing well for a long time. What do we know about response rate and duration and survival, specifically with single-agent anti-PD-1 nivolumab? So all the data is with nivolumab, and about 25% of patients will have an objective response. The median duration of response at the time we reported it was 12 months. There were many of the responders that were continuing in response at the time of that analysis. And there was an improvement in overall survival compared to Everolimus. With the median overall survival for the different studies with Everolimus falling in the 24-25 month range. What about tolerability issues in this situation compared to Everolimus? I think we're kind of getting familiar now with what is typically seen with the anti-PD-1 agents alone. But I'm just kind of curious, you know, thinking back, you know, we've been talking so much about TKIs and Everolimus, you know, globally, clinically, how you would compare quality of life with checkpoint inhibitor to either TKI or Everolimus. So I think that's a really important point. You know, for the most part of our different approved drugs before nivolumab, Everolimus was our best tolerated drug. I mean, Everolimus is rapamycin, basically. And so... It was the best tolerated drug, and it was one of the reasons it was so widely used. And nivolumab did better with regard to a safety profile compared to Everolimus. And it did in the trial. It has in my own experience. And even in the trial, there was improvement in quality of life for nivolumab compared to Everolimus. So I think that that is really the deciding factor for me in terms of what drug to use in second-line therapy with these different drugs available. Cabozantinib, levatinib, plus Everolimus have both resulted in improvement in overall survival, but I base my choice for second-line treatment as nivolumab for most patients because of the safety profile. So that being said, I think many patients treat with nivolumab, but they have no side effects. I mean, they feel really well. When I was conducting the trial, some of the patients, you know, coming off drugs like sunitinib and pizopinib, they were concerned they were getting placebo because they felt so well. And that was something I heard over and over again. And I would reassure them that, no, this is, you know, this is nivolumab. So I think that the safety profile has really been striking. Now, that being said, though, there is a concern for these kind of unusual, rare immune-related side effects, which have been well-recognized for melanoma and other cancers. And So I think that as this goes into the community, we need to educate physicians to be really vigilant as far as kind of these unusual immune-related side effects. And it's, they're a challenge because of the fact that they're all so kind of like different and variable. It's the whole spectrum of rheumatologic disorders, basically. But I do think as these checkpoint inhibitors be incorporated into care, not only for kidney cancer, but across the board, I mean, I think for most malignancies, they're going to become part of standard care, that oncologists will need to be able to recognize these immune-related events and manage them. So I'm going to throw out a few things I've heard from your melanoma colleagues and lung colleagues, et cetera, et cetera, and see what your experience has been, if any, with these problems with renal cell cancer, starting out number one with colitis Sounds like it's not very common unless you bring in uh, anti-CTLA-4. Have you seen clinically significant colitis? Well, I've had a fair amount of experience with the Ipi-Nevo combination in the trials for renal cell cancer, and we definitely do see it in that situation. But I do have to tell you that we're becoming more and more used to it and able to manage it as well. And so 
I think as long as it's recognized early and adequately managed, it's a manageable toxicity. I haven't seen colitis per se with nivolumab as a single agent. What about endocrine issues, including hypophysitis? I see those more commonly. Again, we see them more with the combination with ipinevo, but we do see hypothyroidism and some of the manifestations of you know pituitary insufficiency and adrenal insufficiency. But again, much more with the combination. What about dermatologic issues? Again, I've heard they're, quote, not that uncommon, but not that difficult. Patients often develop kind of a dry, itchy rash. And for the most part, we're able to manage it with topical steroids. And again, relying on our colleague, Mario Lucatur to help us manage those. And occasionally, we utilize short courses of steroids, but generally, it's topicals. Neurologic problems. So those are the trickiest to diagnose and the trickiest to manage. And we have seen some demyelinating disorders and so forth from these drugs, which can be serious. Another issue that goes across tumor lines that comes up with these agents is the question of utilizing them in people with prior autoimmune diseases. And of course, you know, second-line therapy renal cell cancer is not a good situation. So although there are other options, have you encountered people with Crohn's disease, multiple sclerosis, and how do you think that through? So I have not encountered that yet in clinical practice. But for the most part, I have concerns about that. And if a patient has an active autoimmune disorder, I would probably avoid the use of nivolumab in that patient. I know there is one publication that I've seen that indicates that it can be safely given, although there is a higher risk of complication. But in renal cancer, as long as there are other options, I would utilize those first in a patient with active rheumatologic disease. It was interesting when I first started asking people, everybody would say, well, those people were left out of the trials. And then as the drugs came in practice, you started to see data coming out. And it kind of does seem like it often flares up prior autoimmune disease. But as you say, it's kind of a tricky trade-off to think through. Globally, when you start a patient, you know, typical second-line situation on nivolumab, in your mind, what's the likelihood that the patient's going to have a prolonged progression-free survival, let's say over a couple years? Well, I think the progression-free survival, probably not the best metric for nivolumab. So I look to the response rate, more of a durable responses, with the response rate being about 25%. And I think probably about half of those responses are durable. So I mean, it's not with single agent, it helps patients, but it certainly doesn't help the majority of patients. Most patients don't achieve a durable response. I think it's possible It provides hope to all of us, but it's not most patients. That's why we need to do better. I mean, but 10% is a lot more than zero. And I mean, do you think there are people getting cured? I mean, do you have people who get CRs or stay in a CR for a couple years? Yes. I mean, we do have patients that have long-standing responses to NEVA, although I can tell you that I've seen that more with the combination of NEVO-IPI in the trials. And One of the patients that is under my care that was treated on the very first phase one study that is public, it's published, he had progressed through VEGF-targeted therapies, and I didn't think he had much time left, and we treated him on that phase one trial with epinevo, and he, he achieved a complete remission. That was back about three years ago, and, you know, we recently stopped his treatment and following him along, and I think he may be cured. So I think it's possible, but I think it will be more likely as we go into these combinations. I was going to ask you what you do with these rare patients in terms of stopping therapy 
Any sort of general guidelines? We don't have them yet. I mean, for the most part, if the patients are doing well and they're tolerating the treatment with nivolumab, with sunitinib, with pizopinib, we continue them on the medication. I think there are more ground rules from the melanoma group in terms of duration of therapy. We don't have those in kidney cancer where we haven't gotten the experience. And so in my own practice, if the patients are responding and they're doing well, I continue them on the therapy. You mentioned combinations, and of course, the combination of anti-CTLA-4 and anti-PD-1 is now utilized in melanoma and being looked at in a lot of tumors. What's the evidence right now? You sound like you're kind of persuaded that maybe this is going to present an advantage, at least for some patients. What do we know about it? What we know is just really the results from the phase 1B trial that Hans Hammers led and reported at meetings. It hasn't been published in a peer-reviewed journal, and that's really all what we know in public. And then there is a large phase 3 trial, the Checkmate 214 trial, that compared ipinevo to sunitinib in first-line therapy. That study accrued about 1,300 patients. So that one, we're waiting for the results on how that combination is going to compare to sunitinib. What about single-agent PD-1 or nivolumab versus Sinev up front? There hasn't been a randomized trial of Nevo versus Sinitinib as a single agent. It's been the combination of the Ipinevo. There was a small series of patients who got Nevo in first line that were published by Tony Chiauri just recently in clinical cancer research in like a phase one study that actually suggested the response rate might be a little lower in the first-line setting compared to the patients that are more heavily pretreated. But there's really not evidence to go by for single agent. And also, that's why, you know, it's not part of standard practice. You mentioned the idea of combining a VEGF-TKI and a checkpoint inhibitor. Is there any thinking that maybe getting the TKI first-line in some way primes the tumor for a checkpoint inhibitor? Yeah, that's a possibility. But I don't think that there's real evidence for that, too. It's a good hypothesis, and it might lead to trials that look at sequence therapy with vegf targeted therapy for a while, followed by a checkpoint inhibitor. But it's not an established observation. What do we know about the relationship between pdl one assays and response to treatment? You know, in melanoma, there's kind of this thinking that maybe if you have a higher level, you could maybe get away with just anti-PD-1 as opposed to the combination. What about in renal cell cancer? The best data we have is from the phase three trial of Nevo versus Everolimus. And in that study, the pdl one expression was prognostic in both arms, Patients expressing PDL1 had shorter survival than those that didn't, but it was not something that was predictive of a benefit for Nevo over Everlimus. So it's not used in terms of saying, yes, you're a good candidate for Nevo, or no, you're not, based on that expression in the tumor. So I want to ask you about a few of the cases you brought in here today. You brought in this 71-year-old man who has METs, the lungs, liver, pancreas, lymph nodes, gets bisoponib and then actually went on a clinical trial and got cabozantinib. I'm curious what happened there. So this patient is one of those patients with kind of that slow, indolent type of renal cancer. Nephrectomy 10 years before developing metastasis. We watched him for a little while before using the pizopinib, and then started a pizopinib once it was clear he was progressing. 
Did well on the Pazopita, but had some complications. We had to stop it for a short time, and then he progressed. And so he was treated with the cabozantinib, and he had a nice response to the cabozantinib, a partial response, and he had over 18 months of therapy still on cabozantinib today. Wow, that's interesting. I see. It's very interesting. You say he required a dose reduction for hypocalcemia. How often do you see it? What's the mechanism, and what do you do about it? We see hypocalcemia. Hypocalcemia is reported with a VEGF TKIs. The first time it was noted that I'm aware is with serafinib, hypocalcemia, hypophosphatemia. And so this patient actually developed pretty severe hypocalcemia, and he was on a clinical trial which dictated a dose reduction. Was he clinically hypocalcemic? No, he didn't have any clinical manifestations. It was just the abnormal lab value. What's the pathophysiology? I don't know what the pathophysiology is of the hypocalcemia here. So I want to finish out asking you about your 66-year-old man with renal cell metastatic to the lung. Can you talk a little bit about him? I was curious what happened when he was on Everlimus. So this is a 66-year-old male that has renal cell carcinoma metastatic to lung. He was actually had been treated on one of the adjuvant trials, and he developed recurrence in his lung and was found to have been on placebo. He had small volume pulmonary disease, and we treated him with sinitinib, and he did very well, was on sinitinib for about a year and a half, and then had progression of disease. And so he also went on a clinical trial, was randomized to Everlimus, and he's been on Everlimus now for 37 months with stable disease. Wow. He's tolerated the treatment fairly well, although the complications that I've seen in his situation is... He has developed diabetes and is currently on insulin. He had some diabetes before, and it got worse, so he's been made insulin-dependent, which is one of the known side effects of Everlimus. And he's also had these transient pulmonary infiltrates that come and go. You know, we recognize that there's a pneumonitis that's associated with Everlimus, but oftentimes it's not associated with kind of any symptoms, and it comes and goes. It shows up on a CT scan, but unless... It's progressive or the patient is experiencing symptoms. We don't normally modify our treatment for it. How often do you see diabetes, incidentally, and what's the frequency that you actually see it with Everlimus? You know, I would estimate that maybe 20% of patients either develop diabetes or they have worsening of the diabetes, which results in a change in medication. 